Hello and welcome to Asia Stream, where we track, report and analyze the issues and interests of the world's largest region. I am Waj Khan, Nikkei Asia's digital editor here in New York City. Today's episode, the toughest job in Asia. When Bilawal Bhutto Zardari, the scion of assassinated Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto and former President Asif Zardari, took over as Pakistan's youngest foreign minister in April, the nuclear-armed Islamic Republic, which is also the world's fifth largest nation, stood on the brink of economic default, diplomatic isolation, and political chaos. The country of 220 million was overburdened by loans from its main ally, China, and faced hard negotiations in its bid for support from the International Monetary Fund. It was being outperformed in most sectors by arch-rival India and was beset by terrorist threats emanating from Afghanistan. Moreover, the US, its on-again, off-again partner, had cut it off from most assistance and on top of that, Washington was being blamed by ousted Prime Minister Imran Khan for orchestrating regime change, a charge that had triggered an unprecedented wave of anti-Americanism and protests across the country. Today, the picture remains bleak, especially after recent catastrophic flooding, the worst environmental disaster in the country's history. These are the challenges facing Foreign Minister Bilawal Bhutto Zardari, who we've obtained for an exclusive interview in this episode. Bhutto Zardari is the chairman of the left-leaning Pakistan People's Party, and you'll even hear him admit that he signed up for a brutally difficult gig. In the coalition government, which wields little control over parliament and is stitched together by Pakistan's Praetorian military intelligence apparatus, Bhutto Zardari has been tasked with pivoting back to America, back to solvency and away from the activist Islamist populism that former Prime Minister Imran Khan had pursued. This is no simple feat. As a bitter political feud between Khan and pretty much everyone else in the Pakistani political establishment has polarized the state, it's also paralyzed the economy. The rupee has tumbled to its lowest value, the stock market has nosedived, and the country remains on life support at the IMF, with its 23rd bailout underway. Meanwhile, a third of Pakistan's landmass, an area larger than the size of the entire United Kingdom, is underwater and 33 million people, more than the population of Australia, have been rendered homeless by the floods. This, as Khan and his millions of followers are demanding snap elections. Mr. Bhutto Zardari may just have the toughest job in Asia. Trying to repair ties with an America that feels betrayed after the loss of Afghanistan, trying to get relief from a China that isn't doing too well itself, trying to get the Taliban next door to control terrorists from not crossing over, trying to outmaneuver arch-rival India, which seems to be better at pretty much everything it does, and, most importantly, trying to stay in power. Bhutto Zardari recently toured the US, spending a week in New York, where I tried to catch him, and another in Washington, where I finally did catch him. That's where Asia Stream interviewed the 34-year-old Oxford graduate. And that's our show today. You're listening to The Sound of Asia, streaming in your ear. From Nikkei Asia, this is Asia Stream. 
A reminder that Nikkei Asia is currently offering an exclusive discount for our podcast listeners. Get three months of our award-winning coverage for just $9. To redeem, just click the link in the episode description. All right. It's so good to be back in our New York studio. Now, Asia Stream was off last week because I was off reporting in DC, which I must confess was warmer than Gotham, but I have returned a victor with what is an exclusive interview with Pakistan's foreign minister. He's an interesting and even controversial character, Bilawal Bhutto Zardari. He is the second foreign minister in his family. His grandfather, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, served in the same role before he became Pakistan's prime minister and was then executed. His mom, Benazir Bhutto, was also PM. By the way, I've never put this on the record before. She had an interview scheduled with me back in 2007, but was assassinated just a couple of days before we could meet. I still have the emails. His dad, former President Asif Ali Zardari, who is one of the wiliest political operators you will ever meet, I've also interviewed him. But none of those past interactions were for you or for Asia Stream. And we're excited to share this recording with you. Be sure to stick around afterwards for our regular Tokyo Dispatch at the tail of the show. This one's about Asia's central banks and how they're struggling, much like the rest of us. But without much further ado, here's my conversation with Foreign Minister Bilawal Bhutto Zardari. Mr. Foreign Minister, thank you for doing this. Thank uh, you for having me. You're the youngest foreign minister in the country's 75-year history, and yet That's you right. are beset by a set of problems which are unparalleled. You have a breakdown of what was once an alliance uh, which you're trying to repair here in the United States. Uh, you are caught between a rock and a hard place with Beijing, and you are next to what you call a Hindu supremacist neighbor in India. Uh, you also now have the largest uh, natural catastrophe in the country's history at your hands. The only person who gets close to this sort of portfolio of problems was your late grandfather, which around 1971 had similar issues, if not the same, he was dealing with. How does it feel to fill those shoes? I don't know about filling those shoes, and I don't know if anyone can fill those shoes, but obviously when we took over, it's, it's been an incredibly challenging time. I think being foreign minister of Pakistan is probably anyway one of the most uh, challenging uh, foreign ministries to uh, guide uh, on the world. Not because, I mean, our team is fantastic. We probably have the best diplomats uh, of anywhere, but the challenges are such. Uh, what we've done sort of from day one has been emphasizing on engagement, positive engagement. And luckily, uh, those the, the, our consistent engagement has been is beginning to bear fruit. But here in the context of our relations, ever-expanding relations with the United States, uh, but elsewhere as well. Besides climate, which you say is the only problem on your agenda these days, when you wake up on regular mornings, let's say before the floods, and you were beset by the US versus China versus India, uh, what was your, if I may ask you, Twitter-sized solution set to the three? Which so is the know, bigger problem? I don't know if there's a Twitter-sized solution, but thank you for reminding me. Okay, so obviously engagement is key, but with the floods... 
and the devastation that that, that they have caused. Uh, we've amped up our conversations with our uh, partners, with international institutions, uh, because of the desperation of the situation back home. The scale of the tragedy has made our job all the more important. Before uh, a climate, as you know, the biggest challenge that Pakistan was facing was the economic difficulties. And we were all playing our role to ensure uh, that we could help address that. Within our context at the Foreign Office, we are working to enhance trade relations with all uh, countries, also the United States. And actually, the initial purpose of all our engagements, and this was supposed to be the conclusion of that, uh, was the fact that we are now having uh, conversations of expanding trade relations between Pakistan and the United States, Pakistan and other countries. But since we're here, I'm talking about the United States in areas such as tech, energy, agriculture, health, uh, and a whole host of uh, fields. We've been working on GSP+, we're working on getting us off FATF, do whatever we can really to improve the economic environment. And obviously the finance team is working incredibly hard with um, dealing with the IMF itself. But foreign minister, normal foreign ministers from normal countries don't have such a checklist. So to really filter it down, to distill it, right, for our audiences, what's the top three think, things think, on think, your on your agenda on, on a given day? I think I think that all foreign ministers ultimately have this checklist now. Everybody's facing economic difficulties. Everybody prioritizes economic engagement as fast as their, as their foreign relations, particularly post-COVID, uh, where everybody took an economic hit and the consequences of the Ukraine war and the, the sanctions over there resulting in economic complications for everyone across the world. So it's become front and center of, of everyone's foreign policy. Otherwise, literally, it's been four months. In, in those four months, I'm sure if you go back to six months, um, our relations were strained in many places. Uh, so it has taken not only sort of phone calls, but visits and engagements and delivering on the ground to allow a, a sort of a confidence to build between many of our bilateral relations. Right. Speaking of dependencies and bilateralism, there is, uh, you asked this, but I'm going to ask it in a different way. 30% of Pakistan's external debt is owed to China. Now, your party has led the way for, for decades now in promoting Park Jin Dosti. The idea is that what's your China debt restructuring plan? Because you need one, sir. Now, the Chinese don't do debt restructuring. They don't do debt relief. But yet, in this case, it's required. And your party is specially placed because of its history with the, with the Communist Party of China, which goes all the way back to the 60s and beyond, in fact. Do you have a China plan for debt so restructuring? Look, it's fine as far as Pakistan and China's relations are concerned. They're called all-weather friends for a reason, because they've been all-weather friends throughout our history. My party's contribution is absolutely there. As far as debt restructuring is concerned, I'm not talking about debt restructuring with anyone at the moment. Don't you think you need to? Let me get it. We've talked about, maybe we've talked about debt, uh, what do you call it, deferments. We haven't, I haven't asked the US or I haven't asked anyone about restructuring. We're still waiting on our damage needs assessment to be fully done before we have a complemented plan. But that, that'll be an if, right? And before I get that if, uh, I'm not going to comment on uh, debt restructuring. But as far as Pakistan-China relations are concerned, particularly here in the United States, I hear this 30% thrown out a lot. Well, how much investment is they've done in Pakistan? How much has China invested in Pakistan? How much has China and Pakistan built together? 
whether it's our communication network, whether it's the advances in our energy infrastructure, whether it's in, in, in sort of in our ports. Obviously, when you do development to that scale, there is debt. And I'd really like to ask countries like the United States, how much of their debt is due to China? Right? It's the way of the world. If, I, if, if, if we go back to 2010, 2011 floods, I, uh, to restructure, rehabilitate, rebuild from there, we took debt from the World Bank, from the Asian Development Bank. Now, I can't just go to people uh, that X, Y, and Z approve of to get my debt. I am secure and comfortable and confident in the Pakistani-China relationship. I do not need anyone to, uh, to, to, to become a third party to that. We'll have our own conversations. And every time uh, Pakistan and China, whenever we face difficulties, we've been there for each other. And I'm sure that'll happen again. But I will be asking or talking to China myself as the foreign minister of Pakistan on behalf of my countries. And in the context of our conversation, whatever comes out, I'll surely let you know. But I think this preemptive concern that we see at some of the think tanks is a bit uh, unnecessary. Your reset or your attempted reset uh, while you're here to repair ties in Washington, do you think Beijing is watching it warily? Does Beijing have reason to worry about Bilal Bhutto Zadari <laughs> here in Washington? Particularly of Bilal Bhutto Zadari. Okay. Uh, I think that we are confident, as I just said, we are confident in our relationship with China and China right. is confident in me. And I honestly believe it doesn't serve our purpose, it doesn't serve America's purpose, it doesn't serve China's purpose. If Pakistan were to play uh, a role of a divider or a divisive force, we have in the past been a bridge. At the time when uh, diplomatic relations were being established between Pakistan and China, the People's Party, <laughs> the, the foreign ministry and Pakistan played an incredible role. And even today, if I see ourselves or Pakistan or myself playing any role between the two great powers, I would hope it would be that of a bridge. All right. Uh, last couple of questions. You've been doing some maneuvering. As far as India is concerned, you've started playing the Ukraine card. You've said it a couple of times on this trip. One has noticed it that every time you mention India's unilateral annexations, um, measures and maneuvers in since tw uh, August 2019 in occupied Jammu and Kashmir, you started pairing that quite in a wily manner with what's happening in Ukraine. Um, do you have an India plan here beyond asking them to step back as you just did, beyond asking India to step back and roll back its annexation um, and uh, laws in Kashmir? Do you have a larger plan beyond this? So I think that you can have a rational conversation with rational players. It's very difficult to have a rational conversation with irrational players. And people who are, let me repeat the thought, um, the, the, the impression that we've all developed, or at least we've developed in that context, is that Modi's India doesn't like the Muslims of their own country. They don't treat them particularly well. They're not treating the Muslims of Kashmir particularly well. And that leaves us in a particularly difficult uh, position because you're dealing with someone who the impression we get um, on the basis of our faith uh, has a certain approach to that. We have always in the past uh, took the political risk with the confidence or the hope that that political risk would be reciprocated by our neighbors. I hope to be proved wrong and I hope uh, that there's a different uh, reality in India. They are more interested in engagement and living in peace with their neighbors uh, than we 
than the perception that we have. But their actions and conduct between in Jammu and Kashmir has made uh, sort of has made people like us who did hope for peaceful relations uh, with our neighbors to lose that hope a little bit. But Foreign Minister, this is now the world's fifth largest economy. There are three point three trillion dollar empire now. Fine, they're Hindu you, supremacists, you, you, but you got to deal with them, right? You 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 can be rich and evil at the same time. That doesn't change <laughs> the, that's, the realities. That's going to be uh, my headline. Um, so, oh dear, I don't. <laughs> I think evil isn't a word that you shouldn't you, you should throw about. Fair enough, but the the actions that have ta- been t- 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 taken over there is obviously something that is objectionable from a human rights angle. And I hope that we get to the point where we can address the uh, concerns of Kashmir because the engagement between our two countries, the, imagine the unlocked economic potential, not only for Pakistan, but for India. As much as they're the fifth richest country, they'd like to be the fourth richest country, right? And the economic potential that will get unlocked one day, if not under this Hindu supremacist regime, but under some other formulation, and where Pakistan is not only trading with India, but through a peaceful, stable, prosperous Afghanistan with Central Asia, uh, secure, uh, sort of settled Iran uh, on that size, and access to the warm waters. Um, I think that we're positioned not only to have exponential economic benefits for our own people, but for all our neighbors. Last question, the TTP. I know you've been quite, you yourself have said you're a hawk as far as the Tariq Taliban, Pakistan, the Pakistani Taliban, even the Afghan Taliban are concerned. You've admitted it. Uh, You seem to be a skeptic standing out on the sidelines as the rest of your administration is involved deeply in talks uh, with the TTP. Uh, There's now a mechanism in place, this piece at play now. But my question really, sir, is that the TTP from what we understand of it, killed your mother. How does it make you feel that your government is at terms with these people at this time? So as far as the Tariqi Taliban of Pakistan are concerned, obviously we have strong views about the Tariqi Taliban Pakistan. Uh, Baitullah Masood was killed uh, in a drone attack. Then we had our own uh, South Waziristan operation. When we were in power, North Waziristan operation. When Miasab was in power, we broke the backs of this organization. They could not conduct terrorist activities within Pakistan at the same scale, at the same pace, in the same way that they had before. Uh, before administration came in, there uh, was a peace uh, attempt or a dialogue attempt that took place uh, and that we uh, maintained took place behind the backs of parliament. And without Parliament being taken on board, no such uh, dialogue could have legitimacy or the staying power necessary uh, for one that could actually truly achieve peace. As a result of these concerns, uh, for the first time, the negotiations with the TTP were brought before Parliament. Uh, In addition to that, our uh, demand was that a parliamentary uh, committee oversee such talks. I'm not sure of the status of talks as we speak right now, because I believe quite a few changes have happened. Uh, I hope that our suspicions as far as sort of our past experience with dialogue not working out, I hope that sort of we prove wrong there and we reach an agreement or an understanding where we live in peace, where people come back and accept Pakistan's constitution, our way of life and live peacefully within mm, Pakistan. I'm not that optimistic that 
that necessarily will be the outcome. But, you know, the process is there and one can hope. Your government conducted, not your government, but the military conducted airstrikes earlier this summer inside Afghan territory to push the TTP and other assets back. Would you, do you condone that? I think that... um, Would you do it again? Look, terrorism has to be our red line. People who conduct uh, violence within Pakistan, violence against Pakistani citizens, and violence against Pakistani's armed forces will have to answer for it. We prefer that the TTA uh, take action against terrorist groups on their own, in their own soil. Uh, I, as you said, uh, there was a airstrike that took place, and I'm looking at my ambassador because I'm not exactly sure what the official policy on the issue is, but I would say that uh, we should first encourage that the interim government within Afghanistan take action themselves. If they do not do that, and there are groups there that we know that continue to conduct attacks on Pakistani armed forces or Pakistani civilians, uh, then obviously, ultimately, a red line is crossed so many times that it forces a reaction, uh, which you saw uh, in, in the form of those strikes. Now that they're giving engagement uh, a shot, let's see how it works out. If we manage to reach a peaceful settlement, Mm, all well and good, uh, but Pakistan's experience has shown that when we have drawn a red line, established the rate of the state, unlike in other areas, we've succeeded. Uh, and um, that may be the path going forward. That was my interview with Foreign Minister Bhutto Zardari. We now go to Alice French, our Deputy Big Story Editor, for this week's Tokyo Dispatch on how Asia's central banks are dealing with the cascading economic crisis. Konnichiwa and welcome to the Tokyo Dispatch where I send regular updates from the narrow streets and neon lights of Tokyo, home to Nikkei HQ, and hub for our East Asia coverage. This week's big story looks at the diverging policies of Asia's central banks in response to the worldwide post-COVID economic downturn. The money that many countries borrowed to weather the pandemic is now coming back to haunt governments across the region, with economic crises unfolding in Sri Lanka, Laos, Pakistan, and elsewhere. And higher income countries are struggling too, like Japan, where the yen fell to a 24-year low of 145 to the dollar at the end of September. Consumers are feeling the pinch, with prices of everyday items such as fuel, utilities and even ramen noticeably increasing and wages just not keeping up. But despite the common crisis facing countries across Asia, from China to Thailand, governments have shown vastly differing approaches to dealing with post-pandemic economic challenges. Mitsuru Obe, one of our Tokyo correspondents, compares and contrasts the approaches of a range of Asian central banks in this week's story, with some help from our South Korean correspondent, Kim Jae-won, and our Bangkok reporter, Francesca Regalado. I caught up with Mitsuru for a sneak peek at what the story has in store. So let's talk first about the Bank of Japan, which has received a lot of attention in recent months for its rather unconventional approach to inflation. How has Japan been dealing with the economic downturn? And what do you think are the main reasons behind its tactics? It's not just Japan. Countries across Asia are experiencing inflation, and Japan is not an exception. But the business have been as aggressive in raising prices as in the United States. So people 
don't necessarily feel it uh, as much as in another country or in, the, in Europe or in the United States. So BOJ has used that as an excuse for keeping rates at zero or, or keeping its policy stimulative um, at the time when the global economy is slowing sharply. So that makes sense uh, from the Japanese point of view. But the weak yen policy has repercussions for other economies, especially in Asia. So you could raise the question about uh, why Japan doesn't think a bit more about other countries, you know, the, the impact of your policy on other countries. But Japan's really insisting on its monetary policy sovereignty. Um, so the argument is that uh, they are not uh, emerging economies, so they don't have to follow every step taken by the Fed, American Central Bank. It wants to decide its policy independently. So they, they decide to keep the rates low, even though the, the yen has weakened 20% so far. And uh, you wonder what, whether that's really worth the sacrifice, you know, the, the monetary policy independence, whether it's really worth the sacrifice considering the, this uh, sharp yen depreciation. Apparently, Japan believes so. Um, also, the having already publicly committed to this loose monetary policy, the Bank of Japan found it difficult to change right now. I see. So I suppose only time will tell as to how long Japan can keep up its current tactics. Now, your story also goes into the situation in several other countries, including China, where the central bank continues to ease its monetary policy, despite tightening by most banks across the rest of the region. How has this affected the financial status of ordinary people in China? China has been easing its monetary policy, but it has been very gradual. It hasn't relied on the monetary policy for stimulating the economy as much as the United States have or the Japan has. You know, the, the, its main policy rate has been reduced uh, only slightly, but they are trying to support the economy. The country is still feeling the effects of the, you know, the massive stimulus they implemented after the Lehman crisis, which is a decade ago, you know, it's more than a decade ago, 2009. But at the time, uh, much of the, that spending, stimulus spending, was done by, not by the central government, actually, by local governments and the corporate sector, and they left a huge amount of debt. And, and the country, now they're trying to work out that legacy of the huge debt, um, so the country cannot really afford to uh, tighten monetary policy just because the U.S. is raising rates or other countries are raising rates or the yuan is falling. So, so in that sense, the Chinese people are benefiting from this stimulative monetary policy implemented by the People's Bank of China. But uh, one concern is a capital outflow. Uh, in 2015 and 2016, there was a the big a capital outflow from China after the uh, small yeah, yuan devaluation. China doesn't want to see that again. So uh, it keeps its policy accommodated to the extent that uh, it won't spark capital flight. Right. And it's not just Japan and China. Your story goes into the monetary policies of several other major economies in Asia. And for me, the most interesting point of your story is just how different central banks' approaches are in the current post-COVID economic landscape. Why are we seeing such divergence of monetary policy, even among countries that are so geographically close to each other and that are dealing with similar situations? And for how long do you think this chaos will continue? Asia has grown wealthier 
And uh, South Korea is indeed wealthy. It's already a very wealthy country. Uh, in one measure, it's wealthier than Japan. Uh, China uh, has a huge middle class. So in that sense, all these countries look similar, but they have different economic systems. Uh, Japan has a reserve currency and insists on its monetary policy, sovereignty or independence. Uh, South Korea uh, relies a lot on China and it's actually its economy is vulnerable to slowdown in China. So, and the country also has other challenges like uh, uh, experienced uh, capital outflows or, or the currency crisis in 1998 and 2008. And so uh, people are aware of it and then the, the central bank is aware of it and then uh, has to take steps to prevent uh, such a risk. Country also has a, South Korea also has a housing market bubble in Seoul. So uh, on one hand, it has to keep a uh, keep rates high to attract, you know, uh, keep the currency strong. But on the other hand, it has to protect the economy from the slowdown in China. So it's in a tight spot. And other Asian countries are also uh, concerned about uh, capital outflow as much as inflation. So. Uh, they, you know, their central banks tend to keep pace with the U.S. And uh, but at the same time, uh, their economy is not as strong as the United States in terms of their ability to, you know, withstand higher interest rates. So uh, those central banks also have a difficult choice to make. Um, so the situation, uh, this policy divergence is likely to continue uh, between Japan and the U.S., between the you know China and the US or the the rest of the rest of Asia, uh, this means a potentially uh, more turmoil in the financial markets. Thank you very much to Mitsuru for chatting to me about his story. You can read his full piece on Wednesday on the Nikkei Asia website. This has been Alice French with the Tokyo Dispatch for Asia Stream. Matane. That's it for Asia Stream this week. As always, I encourage you to head to Nikkei Asia at asia.nikkei.com for more in-depth coverage of Pakistan and all things related to Asia. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share, subscribe, and leave us a review and hopefully a five-star rating. And a last reminder that Nikkei Asia is currently offering an exclusive discount for our podcast listeners. To get the discount, click the link. Just click it. It's in the episode description. This episode was produced by the one and only Monica Hunter-Hart, and I'm your host, Waj Khan. Next week, we'll stream again. So don't swim too far downstream, because we'll be back soon with an episode on the ongoing Iranian protests, where we'll even be talking to a brave woman who's been demonstrating on the ground against another Islamic Republic. Talk then.